Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim is to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help or not. We're looking at reopening schools in the wake of COVID and how learning is changing. We want to know how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. A lot of people talk about transforming education, but get stuck at the edges of a system that is genuinely hard to transform. Our guests this week are not on the edges, but firmly in the mess of a genuine, authentic, slightly mind-bending new approach to learning. Wisdom, Amuzu, and Olivia Jones are the co-founders of Empower High School, which was started in 2019 and is based in Aurora, Colorado. Its mission is authentic education that is led by students, guided by educators, and co-created with community. While there's a core curriculum that meets the demands of what the state says kids need to know, Empower students are given frequent and real opportunities to define what matters to them and given ways to do something about it with coaching and mentoring along the way. This happens in and out of classrooms. Examples include defining how their school day is structured with remote learning and how they are assessed and flow, a period devoted to self-directed projects. The school is built on the principle of transformative resistance, of developing leaders who can, and these are wisdom's words, transformatively resist systems of oppression and build new systems of liberation for themselves and their communities. Empower has been messy. It has been hard, even aside from the pandemic, and Wisdom would tell you they are not moving nearly as fast as he would like. We're all born hardwired with a desire to want to understand how things work and we want to learn. We want to understand the world around us and our place in it. And I think we don't often give students authentic opportunities to explore that. And school can sometimes kill that desire in us because we learn that learning is a place where we're consistently told we're unsatisfactory, we're partially proficient, like we have to learn. We're this empty vessel that needs to be filled up with information. Because it's student-led, the students wrote their vision statement. It is this. The world is ours. Wisdom and Olivia believe the school's mission is to give kids the tools they need to walk with that level of agency, to build in them the mindsets and abilities to make that statement a reality. Wisdom and Olivia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. That was awesome. You guys just did that in unison. Have you been practicing that? So in August 2019, you opened Empower High School with 120 students. You did this after spending two years breaking bread with 23 students, eight parents, six community members, and 10 educators. Why did you open the school? (laughs) Okay, for the listeners, they're just pointing at each other. (laughs) They can't wait to get, don't make me be like a teacher and call on one. Exactly. Wisdom, you can go ahead and get started. I laugh because in the last nine months, I've asked myself that question about a hundred times because uh, this has easily been the most painful uh, months of this journey. Um, but the answer is pretty clear. I have zero, and truly this year has actually settled this for me, zero interest in contributing to or continuing the tradition of school as we know it. I'm only interested in designing and building the kinds of institutions that can actually bridge the gap between 2020 and 2050 or 2150. It's power. It's having the experiences first as a student uh, in this public education system, then as a teacher, 
now as a school leader and constantly experiencing school cultures and school systems that do not understand my genius or the genius of my people and my culture. And then constantly facing the battle of having to persuade folks to disrupt their mindsets, their systems, their cultures, their structures, other than power. And we keep repeating that phrase, we have an education system built for a different century. We all know that. And yet the beast continues and empower is our best attempt and probably last attempt at trying to do something different. What's not working in the system as we know it? And then how are you guys addressing that? We don't make space enough for authentic collaboration between the learners and the teachers and the families and the school administrators. We end up getting stuck in little silos with our stakeholder groups. And I think what inspires me the most about the work at Empower is that it's led collectively by all of us. And so anytime you know something isn't working, the people who put their brains together to figure out how to fix it are all of the people. Students suggesting, okay, what if we made this shift? And it can be something big that impacts the whole school, or it can be something small. Like an example that's popping to my mind right now is, you know, what schedule works in remote learning? How do you make it actually feasible? You don't want to ask someone to sit in front of a screen and stare at Zoom for eight hours that they normally would be in a classroom. We think about it generally based on our perspective of the problem. And so if we are all only teachers thinking about what solution will work for the schedule, and we don't have families sitting at the table with us when we're deciding or students sitting at the table with us, we'll end up with a solution that won't actually stand. And I think too often power isn't shared in schools. It's too much of like a top-down model. And so we just see the same type of learning happening everywhere instead of truly innovative models happening that are designed in real time and continuously changing and adapting based on what students, families, and teachers believe how it needs to change. And so tell me how you solved that one problem of schedules. What did you all decide and what were some of the inputs from the different groups? Of course, none of us had tried fully remote learning before. So it was all our first guess for quarter one. What was designed was making sure there are long breaks between any Zoom sessions, a minimum of 10 minutes. The first quarter, we did 50-minute classes and then instantly learned that's actually not enough time. Everything takes three or four times longer on Zoom than it would in person. And so now for quarter two, we've extended it out to 75-minute chunks of time on Zoom um, with large breaks in between, including like some of those blocks of time. Students actually aren't on Zoom and they're engaging in something like the Hustle Collective or other programs that don't require that they actually sit in front of a computer. And again, all of that was based on conversations we had with staff and students together and families who are juggling like, well, this many people are on the internet at this time, or I actually need my high schooler to be watching the preschooler who lives in the house during this hour. And I think it's been beautiful to see how when everybody's brain is put on the problem, like we can actually make changes in real time as well. The first thing I think when I hear kind of let everybody come to the table and bring all the ideas to the table. I love the sound of that, but I also feel fear. I think, oh my God, that's going to be so messy and complicated. Is that what happened? And is that okay? Sometimes that's what happens. Wisdom, I'm curious what you think about this question too. For me, anytime we're dealing with humans, we're lying if we say it's not messy or chaotic. And in the current order, there's just a certain kind of chaos we're familiar with. It's almost nostalgic. 
uh, especially in education. The scale of the human messes at, at every element, uh, no one is spared from the students to the parents, to the teachers, to the administrators, to the district officials, to the board members. Everyone is bringing the shit they need to heal to this situation. For me, it's always messy. It is always messy. And now we cannot actually skip over uh, one of the central themes to community organizing, which is the alignment of our individual self-interest. We cannot function if we don't find a way to understand the needs of the folks who want to stay at home, be they students, parents, or teachers, and understand the needs of the folks who want to be in the building. There are no more siloed decisions. Well, I guess you can. Yeah, you can. Some people are still making siloed decisions. And I think that for me is really the answer of like, it's scary because it's a mess we're unfamiliar with, but we're in a current mess now. And we just, we've made peace with the things we'll never heal in the way that the current system is set up. And we've all just accepted like, well, okay, we've accepted this mess for as long as we can remember. Like school primarily looks very similar to how it did when I was in high school. Lots of students are reading the same books that I read. They're doing, they're going to different classes with a short passing period in between. Everything looks almost exactly the same. And We know in a lot of ways that that hasn't worked. We see the effects when those people graduate and go to college and struggle with independence. And like we know the impacts of those things. We know what we're signing up for with that versus saying, okay, yes, we're going to open this up. And it's going to be scary because it will also mean that we laugh sometimes. People never ask this question, but it's something that they should ask, which is, okay, well, a student-led school, like explain to me how that works. Like what about when you ask students to do something and they just say, no, and it's a student-led school, right? So, um, and you know, we do see that. Like you, as a teacher, it requires different skills of you to work at a school like Empower because you have to function differently and ask different questions and build different kinds of relationships with students and families. It looks a lot like what Wisdom talked about with community organizing. That requires deeper levels of relationships and trust. And I think that's what saves you when it starts to feel very scary and messy is like, oh, well, actually though, it's not on me. It's on all of us to figure this out. So as scary as it is, I can share the burden of that fear with all this whole big group of people. Um, And they won't just be pointing at me and asking me why I've failed as a school leader. Like we'll just all go back to the drawing board and keep figuring it out until we have a solution that does work. Tell me what you think are the most important kind of design principles for the school and actually how it works. Let's start with the five F's. What are they? What do they mean? And how do they fit into every day? Uh, Future, family, flex, flow, and fun. That specifically is just referring to the the instructional blocks in the building. The dream, 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 dream model of this school is not what we're currently doing. What we're currently doing is a hybrid between uh, that can satisfy accountability uh, metrics with our district uh, what students and parents are and teachers are familiar with, and then, you know, pushing them, okay, a little bit, if let's just call it, it's 100 points between the current system and where we really want to go. I feel like we've pushed them, I'm just making this up, 15 or 20 points. And, you know, one way that shows up is, yeah, what the state cares a whole lot about is instructional minutes. you got to meet those minutes. So you've got to structure your day to make sure at the end of the school year, all the bureaucrats know the kids got this many minutes of instructional time. Aside from that, the actual function of those blocks is what's key. So you have family. It's no different than advisory. We're just trying to make sure it actually happens. 
and in an ideal family unit, you have more of a mentor relationship with that teacher. And it's an adult that deeply believes in you, is deeply connected to you and your family, and can guide you on this journey of development. It's also a space for explicit social emotional learning, instruction, dialogues, modeling techniques, all that jazz. Future is basically where the core content classes happen, preparing you for your future. So we're talking about math, science, and then our ethnic studies curriculum, which combines ELA and social studies. And languages, right? Sorry, your world languages. And the world languages, yep. Flow, this is where I think we're really trying to push folks. Okay, plus 40 points, which is student-led projects that impact the community. It's a space for entrepreneurial leadership. There were two main reasons I wanted to start the school. One is for students to have access to ethnic studies and students of all races. And then two is flow. Uh, the power of entrepreneurial leadership, the power of learning how to hustle as part of your high school experience, the power of learning through paid internships and externships. I strongly believe it's those experiences that truly prepare our kids to thrive in the economy of 2050. There is more value in what you will learn from trying to do something beyond just talking, trying to actually do something. Aside from flow, the last two are flex. That's for basically intervention or acceleration. One tutoring support that we're starting is a partnership with a company called Mathnasium. And there's about 10 to 12 students who will get access to a one-on-one -on -one tutor and obviously on math. And it's best, that's what flex is. And then the last one is fun. One, the fun should not be limited to one block. All the, we should be having fun in all our classes, but uh, actually as a part of the mental health, as part of growing a healthy school culture, we need to intentionally plan fun as part of the everyday school culture. Olivia, can you tell us what flow means and how it works day to day? The Writing Center is kind of like the history of Flow. So before Flow was the full-blown program that it is now at Empower, it started with just um, 16 seniors at Manual High School who opened a student-led writing center. And they were co-planning, designing curriculum with teachers, pushing into classrooms as like writing specialists who could coach their peers um, and design really impactful, authentic ways to use writing to influence social change. So they called themselves like literary activists. And that translated into flow in that it's almost as if that was their flow project. So now at Empower, flow is an entire program where each student gets to ask themselves like what passions and skills do they have that or do they want to develop? What special gifts do they bring to the community that they can, you know, design a project around those skills and passions that has a real world impact that they care about. Um, and I think for me, this is the design principle that matters most to the work that happens at Empower is just, we know this truth that we're all born hardwired with a desire to want to understand how things work. And we want to learn, we want to understand the world around us and our place in it. And I think we don't often give students authentic opportunities to explore that. And school can sometimes kill that desire in us because we learn that learning is a place where we're consistently told we're unsatisfactory, we're partially proficient. We we just don't understand, like we have to learn we're this empty vessel that needs to be filled up with information. And I think what we've discovered really from learning from those students at the Writing Center and then also seeing what's come out of the flow program at Empower in the last 
year and a half is that students are extremely, they have so many passions that we don't even know about and ways that they can make such a positive impact on the world around them. And we don't give them enough of a chance to do that before they graduate. You know, we think about school as like preparation for the real world instead of just giving students the ability to learn in the real world now and have an impact now. And the truth is I think we need their leadership. So seeing the flow projects gives me a lot of hope for our collective future because I see students making a very big difference in the community around them. So give us some examples of a few flow projects. One is called Black Girl Empowerment. They designed a mentoring group. You know, they identified a problem in the community and they said, you know, we all have experienced this as young Black women in America. We're taught to think that we are not good enough. We need to be different in order to be accepted. And they're not taught to feel beautiful in their own skin. And so they did a ton of research to understand why that is and where that comes from, the like historical legacy of that. And then they designed a program to help young black girls at the elementary schools they went to engage in a mentoring program and unlearn some of those things and like truly learn how to empower themselves and empower other young black girls. Another one is called Niche. It was started by David Smith and Kareem, and they both really wanted access to the niche science fields like anthropology and paleontology. And they, um, the problem that they identified in the community was a lack of diversity in the STEM field. And so they designed a really cool, like connected, and that's the most brilliant part of Flow in terms of day-to-day operations is you get to see students and truly what, like how good they are at hustling for one of their ideas like on a, I can't remember what holiday it was, but we didn't have school that day. And I just got an email so excited that they'd reached out and already heard back from the Dean of STEM education at CU Boulder. Um, And they just reached out and asked, okay, we have this dream for a project and we're not really sure where do we go from here? How do we get really powerful keynote speakers? How can we offer free programming to students who want to learn more about these fields? What would it look like to have like dig days to go out and be, and they started to actually build that network. So with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, with the Denver Zoo, with this um, Dean of STEM Education at CU Boulder, um, and even some contacts at Colorado School of Mines, like they started to build the network last year. Of course, they're having to adapt (laughs) with COVID to a virtual delivery of their program, but it's beautiful to see what they're doing and kind of the connections that they built and the program that they'll implement based on just what do they see that the community needs and then what skills and gifts do they have to offer that they believe could fulfill that need. How do you mentor that, scaffold that as educators? They're identifying the need, they're doing the work, but what kind of coaching are they getting? is a keen word choice to use coaching because that's exactly what it looks like. It's extremely individualized. It means meeting each student where they are and asking them questions to find out what it is makes them feel most inspired and most alive and most energized. And it can be really hard because in the beginning, you'll get a lot of students who will say, well, nothing. I'm not really passionate about anything or I'm not really good at anything. Like I don't really have any skills. And so what it is, is about helping them unearth those things that they actually do know about themselves. So asking about a time when they felt really joyful, when did you feel really proud of something that you did? Um, Or when did you feel really curious and starting to ask them questions that will help them uncover some of those things. I think the most key is realizing as a teacher, you can't be that person for everyone. And so what you really need to do is create shared experiences among the group of students so that they can also play that role for each other. 
so that when a student says, well, I'm not really good at anything, all of their peers chime in and start to say, wait, 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 what? That's not true. I saw you do this thing or you've played this role for me before. That's definitely a skill of yours. And I think the biggest role as an educator, as you guide them through that is preparing them to step into the same role that you're in so that once someone has launched a flow project, they can all then support everyone else in like helping identify what would be a good need to focus on. And then from a more logistical standpoint, we're aligned with the community-based participatory action research. So that's the process that students move through and they design a research plan based on like the need or issue that they'd like to focus on. And then they collect a bunch of research, design a solution. We also use like design cycle thinking in in some steps of the process to help them kind of refine and like they definitely pilot and do a prototype. So for the Black Girl Empowerment Group, it was going and running one workshop and then really processing, okay, what did we learn? What feedback did we get from the students? And then how do we um, tweak the design of our program to really meet those needs and better serve the students that we're working with? And you know, preparing people to be able to solve problems and sit in the uncertainty and also like solve a problem, realize that solution didn't work and go back to the drawing board and solve again. That's what we're working on in Flow and really making sure that it's co-created and collaborative with communities so that you're not just going and imposing a solution on other people based on what you think they need, that there's always opportunities for them to work with you. I'm curious whether the parents and students who signed up kind of for the revolution were comfortable with the revolution once they were in it. I think one of the biggest challenges is we're all so used to the way things have been that it can be extremely uncomfortable to change those parts. And I see it a lot with teachers, like they really like the idea of Empower and the description on the website. And they're really excited about working at a student-led school. And then school starts <laughs> and all the things that you used to use in your classroom to control student behavior, all those tools that you're used to pulling out don't work anymore. And even if they do work, all it's doing is getting students to conform to what you want them to do, which is quite literally the opposite of what the mission of Empower is. Like We don't want to train people to just conform to a system or daily routine that makes them feel very unhappy and that like kills all inspiration and desire to learn. But that's really hard, right? Because if you're a teacher and you've been a teacher for 15 years, you're really used to using grades as a way to get students to do something like, well, I'll give you a zero and then you'll have an F and then you won't be able to graduate. And then you'll have to do this thing that I'm trying to get you to do instead of shifting the mindset to, well, what would I have to do to get a student to learn this skill in a way that they'd want to learn it so that I don't even have to like blackmail them with grades. I can like, they just will feel compelled to do this. I don't have to convince David and Kareem the importance of learning how to write an email professionally because they know that they wouldn't have gotten a reply on any of those had they not like spent a lot of time crafting an email. I didn't even have to ask them to get feedback to make sure that it wasn't missing anything. They elected to do that on their own with multiple people before pressing send on the email because they knew the stakes were that high. And so I think it takes a lot though, because ultimately, again, it comes back to people feeling afraid of what a big mess that will be. And it's not really teacher's fault. Like they're evaluated generally based on their ability to control the bodies in their classroom. Like, yeah, I walked in and these two kids were on their phone in the back. So you will get demoted a score on your teacher evaluation. And that then 
like breeds this belief that it's teacher's job to control and manage the behavior of bodies instead of just, no, actually what my job is, is designing something that's inspiring enough that it, like it demands your engagement, not because I'm demanding it, not because I'm going to give you a zero and then you won't get a high school diploma or not because I'm going to call your parents, but because you can't, you truly just cannot even not engage. It's that juicy of a topic. It's that aligned with what you're interested in. And I think it takes enough reps that you've discovered it's true as a teacher. And until you have that, it's not really any version of anyone telling you like, no, no, you could stop even having grades. <laughs> they won't believe you until they've experienced what it feels like to just practice that mindset shift. Do you have grades? I don't personally in flow. We do have grades. So talking about like how comfortable is everyone with the revolution? We're not there across the board yet. So students still get grades in future. So their core content classes and they still have a grade on their transcript for flow. I just don't have a grade book and students actually design what the grading process looks like in flow. So you have a flow grade. So the parent knows that they're working, but it's not for the student because the student knows that you don't have the grade book and it's not for you because you're not really evaluating them on that not just the parents, but also colleges, like students need a grade on their transcript to apply to college. And we've just found a way to make a grade meaningful inflow is to actually sit down and co-create what our grading process will look like. So the irony is I personally believe that the process students designed is actually more rigorous than what traditional grades do. Like what they designed for their grading process was they had to build a portfolio. They had to come to an interview that had one other peer from the class, also myself and one community member, and they had to present their portfolio. The students came up with about 20 questions that they wanted people in that interview to ask them about specific knowledge and content we covered in class, questions around project development and the work that they'd been doing in the community. And then students had to defend, it almost felt like a PhD thesis almost, like here's all of this work that I did, I'm gonna defend and explain. And the last question that they were asked is, based on all of this, what grade do you feel like is most representative of the work and learning you've done in this class so far this semester? And I think what's hard is sometimes students give themselves a grade lower than they really deserve. And it would take their peer and the community member, like pushing them a little more to actually land on the grade that was representative of the work they've done. We started with 120 kids first year. How many of those kids came back? I mean, that's a pretty good indication of the how families felt about it. Yeah, we had about 75% retention. We lost a lot of students over that first year. Some due to the natural transient nature of our community, but for others, it was direct feedback for the quality of the program we were offering. I basically saw two things happen. One, we definitely suffered from founder syndrome, which is the majority of the clarity was in these two people's heads and not the 16 adults who were charged with implementing this thing. And you saw so much variance. Funny enough, it was whiplash for us as founders, actually. What did they say about flight? The hardest part is the takeoff. That's where the most amount of energy is expended. You spend so much energy and then you get to that starting place and it is so, there are times where it was night and day. And, you know, there are always proof points, which is why I thank God Olivia was in the classroom, not coaching someone to get there, directly implementing the vision and living it, becoming an, a proof point inside of the building. I think this is actually really good for our journey because we got to see, or at least I got to see how easy it is to revert back to the status quo without the right boundaries, procedures, systems, training, uh, mindset conversations. Folks will just recreate what they know. And on the plus side, we at least got a really solid foundation 
for us, our framework is transformative resistance. And our founding principle created a solid culture where truly all the teachers in the building were adapting their curriculum to hit on the five key themes of transformative resistance. And you got to see the kids internalize that and begin to apply that. Can you tell us what the five elements of transformative resistance are? The five key themes are first, the centrality of race, racism, and intersectionality with other forms of subordination. Two, the interdisciplinary perspective. Three, the commitment to social justice. Four, the challenge to dominant ideology. And we always have a joke because everyone can get to four and you always forget the fifth, even if you go out of order. <laughs> what did the I forget? Centrality of experiential knowledge. There it is. I'd love to hear what COVID did for you and for your students and also the challenges it presented to you both and kind of how you guys are addressing those. It disrupted and allowed us to reflect on all of these learnings we're sharing today, which is for me the greatest gift, uh, especially at that first year. To be honest, I specifically remember when the stay-at-home orders were called and we were really starting to see, okay, this is not a two-week thing. This is, let's gear up for the next three years for this situation. And what was most telling for me was the conversations we were having uh, with our educators and the conversations we were not having. The instincts that our staff had and did not have were indicative of the ways in which we were on track to meet this vision and were wildly off track. We were not on track to create this school. We were on track to create something that was a marginal improvement of the current status quo. Everything has changed. We don't have a choice but to adapt right now. And I think it does require everyone adopts that mindset of we need to keep adapting until this works because there isn't like a solution to remote learning that all of a sudden it's as good as when you're in person. Even personally, as someone who still teaches the classes, it is extremely hard to teach people you can't see. Not often do students have videos on and most it's because they don't have the wireless internet that will hold a video connection. And so you'll even see sometimes they'll turn video on and then it gets all choppy and they get booted out and they have to rejoin. Um, But it's really hard as a teacher to just imagine if you spend an hour and 15 minutes talking to a bunch of black squares with names on a computer who are responding to you over chat. It gets very hard to then adapt curriculum to meet the needs of those people because you can't see them or hear them or like really get that, that level of connection. But I think one thing that has been a great design principle at Empower and one that we did right when they made the call last March was this mentality of this is good. Like we're going to focus on the parts of this that are good and present opportunities that we didn't have before. Like now some learning that's asynchronous can count towards instructional minutes. That did not used to be true. Now it is true, which means we can make smaller class sizes and have independent work happen outside of the class period time. That's a huge advantage that was not available to us until now. Or even teachers' ability to check in with students discreetly over chat one-on-one if something is going like, does this question make sense? Does like that makes it a lot easier for students to even admit and just private message a teacher to say what part is confusing instead of having to raise your hand in front of a whole classroom of learners to say that you don't understand. Students disclosing really deep mental health struggles or deep challenges they're having, that would would be much harder in that different context. What is the Hustle Collective and how is that going to outlive COVID? 
that was a beautiful thing born out of COVID is the Hustle Collective, which is the opportunity for students to pick any skill or passion that they've wanted to explore and get the resources of up to $150 worth of supplies shipped directly to their home and the support of a champion who serves in like an executive coach role and will meet with you once a week and just ask questions about your learning process and support you as you teach yourself a new skill that you've always wanted to learn. So we have students learning video editing, learning costume design, archery, chess, piano, guitar, uh, songwriting. Like you cannot even imagine all of the different skills, but it's been very beautiful to see them designing their own learning plan, holding themselves accountable using the support of a coach and really getting inspired about learning. What is something that the students created? Well, our vision statement, the world is ours, was written by a student. And any example of something a student wanted to create that you actually said no to? What happens normally is someone will have an idea and then they don't have the dedication to see it through. So they'll be like an idea about a freshman mentoring program and then like they reach out initially and then it just kind of drops off and fizzles out but I don't I can't think of anything we've said no to right off campus lunch during COVID but we haven't even been able to reopen they wanted off campus lunch and we're like well we can't really make that happen (laughs) this is the fun part of the interview and this is going to be like doubly fun because there's two of you what is your favorite book about learning teaching community by bell hooks it will be Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paolo Frey. And what is your favorite book not about learning? Another Country by James Baldwin. This is How You Lose Her by Juno Diaz. And what are you binge watching? I just finished The Queen's Gambit. It was so good. I want to start it all over and watch it again. <laughs> I'm really excited to watch that. I haven't seen that yet. The Mandalorian. The Mandalorian. All right. I haven't even heard of that one. Very cool. Um, Thank you guys so much for taking some time to talk to me and good luck with year two. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jenny. When we talked to Wisdom and Olivia a few days after the U.S. election, seven months into the pandemic and a year and a half into the founding of Empower, Wisdom sounded deeply frustrated with the pace and scope of change. The impulse to revert to a broken system, even when the school was explicitly founded to take on that broken system, was so powerful. But a few days ago, when I checked in with Wisdom, he told me all the ways the community was mobilizing change. Parents were organizing socially distanced social activities for the community because the mental health toll on kids has been so high. The teachers had just finished some professional development on stereotype threat and student evaluation. Some parents had proposed a way to bring esports into the mix while teachers were incorporating drone racing into the physics curriculum. COVID and the foundations Empower had laid were indeed catalyzing community-led change. I was struck by just about everything in this conversation, but haunted by one of Olivia's comments about how easy it is to just accept everything that is wrong with education because it is wrong in a familiar way. As she said about resistance to deep-rooted change, it's scary because it's a mess we're unfamiliar with, but we're in a current mess now and we've just made peace with it. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.